Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the home of storytelling. They make it easier than ever to discover the right content to enrich your life. As a leading destination for audio storytelling, Audible has thousands of titles, including audiobooks, groundbreaking originals, podcasts, and so much more. I love listening to audiobooks on long car trips, which of course I'm constantly on because I live in Los Angeles and it takes 30 minutes to go five miles. Recently, I've been listening to Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, and it is perfect for commuting or driving around the city because it's so funny. I love that it's narrated by Tina Fey. It feels like she's telling me a story on my drive. Right now, you can get one month of Audible for free by using offer code UNRULY. That will get you one free audiobook to enjoy on your next long drive. Go to audibletrial.com backslash unruly to get your free audiobook. And let me know what you pick because I want to know what to listen to next. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y to get your free audiobook. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering a woman who is often left out of our histories of Latin America, Manuela Sáenz. Sáenz was a friend and lover of Simón Bolívar, and was often referred to as the Libertadora to Bolívar's Libertador. She's widely remembered by people in South America today, but a lot of historical accounts, when they include her at all, either romanticize Sáenz as a beautiful woman passionate for both freedom and Bolívar, or they downplay her role to one pivotal moment when she saved Bolívar's life. For a lot of my coverage, I'm going to rely on For Glory and Bolívar by Professor Pamela S. Murray, which is one of the only books about Sáenz in English. Fortunately for us, it's also one of the most in-depth books about her. Real quick before we get into her story, for a full transcript of today's episode, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. In addition to the full transcript, you can also get ad-free episodes, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, and so much more. So check it out. All right, let's hop back in time. We're going to Latin America's Age of Revolution, a time that saw the European Enlightenment come to bear fruit in the revolutions of Central and South America against colonial powers. Manuela Sáenz was born at the perfect time to bear witness and participate in this. Born in December of 1797, she was the perfect age to grow up in the new liberal republican order of South America. But let's back up. Manuela's birth, like our previous subject Anne Bonny's, was considered illegitimate but in an interesting legal way. In Quito, Ecuador, where she was born, her parents had the unique option of marking her down as a foundling child, or hija exposita. It means literally child of unknown parents, though her parents were both very much known. But it was a designation specially designed to protect the reputations of both of her upper-class parents. That both of her parents were considered social elites really helped to mitigate the stigma that would have come with being an illegitimate child. Unfortunately, we don't know much about her childhood, though. She probably never had much of a relationship with her mother, Joaquina Aisburo. The Aisburo family was a wealthy Creole family living in the most prestigious part of Quito. 
that Joaquina got pregnant through an affair with a married man who was a friend of the family would have been very embarrassing for them. Codes of honor and decency were very strictly enforced. The 30-year-old unwed Joaquina did what social norms dictated she had to do, gave birth in secret and gave the baby up to the local La Concepcion convent, an organization known for taking in this kind of quote-unquote orphan. The sad truth is that Manuela may have never seen Joaquina again, though she would know who gave birth to her and would clash with the Aispuro family later in life. Manuela's father, Simón Sáenz de Vergara y Hidra, was a completely different story. Like we talked about in Anne Bonny's episode, it wasn't totally unexpected that a man would have an affair, and the stigma that would have haunted Joaquina never would have impacted Simón the same way, despite the fact that he was the married one. The patriarchy. It's unfair. Fortunately for the baby, Simone Sáenz was willing to provide for her and even formally acknowledge her, which is how she gained her last name. Though raised by the nuns at La Concepción, she was integrated into the family, which, among other things, gave her the right to be treated as a respectable woman who was to be addressed with the honorific doña, meaning madam or lady. The convent they chose was a reflection of the affluence both her parents' families enjoyed. There was a 1,000 peso minimum dowry required to ensure her acceptance at the convent, which was a lot of money then and now. Side note, I know that normally in episodes I try to do an inflation calculator to help illustrate how much something really cost, but in trying to convert 18th century Ecuadorian pesos into US dollars today, I just found it to be impossible, in part because Ecuador has changed their currency a few times since Manuela's birth. Today, Ecuador actually uses the US dollar and has since 2000. Suffice to say that a thousand pesos would have been an unthinkable amount of money for an average or impoverished family in Quito in 1797. La Concepcion would have been a beautiful place to grow up, however. Most of Quito's inhabitants lived in cramped adobe houses, whereas the Concepcionista nuns lived in a spacious and elegant campus that rambled for more than a block. It contained beautiful covered passages with a garden in the center. The convent is actually still in operation, and on the substack I'll post some more current photos of it. Each nun had her own house or cell with a patio and a slave or servant who prepared all of her meals. The convent itself had its own bakery, kitchen, workshops, and more, a universe unto itself. It remains the oldest convent in Quito and for a long time was aligned with the region's elites. They had a tradition of admitting daughters from only the most noble of families to become nuns. The hundred nuns there were of mostly white or creole origin. Of course, the monastery reflected Quito's socioeconomic realities as well. Those 100 nuns presided over a veritable army of 1,300 maids or servants who were mostly indigenous or mestiza, a person of mixed European and indigenous ancestry. Creole, for those unfamiliar with the term, is a racial category of persons of mixed European and black or African ancestry. Now, the cloister was also a hub of activity. If you hear nun and cloister and think of a remote place for silent contemplation and prayer, think again. The Concepcionistas were known for their pragmatic dedication to industry. They manufactured lace and fine embroidery, enameled wood and handicrafts, and they also taught the local privileged young girls how to read and write, how to sew and embroider, and how to cook fine delicacies that one might make for a special occasion, but not everyday cooking for meals. Candy making, to my surprise, was actually heavily associated with female gentility at this time. In his book Lima, A Cultural History, James Higgins notes that in certain larger convents like La Concepcion, the rules for nuns were generally more relaxed across Spanish America. Nuns could receive guests and, quote, having a nun in the family was seen as conferring social prestige, end quote. One European visitor to a convent in the 1830s, a little after Sáenz's time there, noted, 
and this is a long quote, convent rule is nowhere to be seen. It is a house where everything goes on that goes on in any other house. There are 29 nuns, each of them has her own lodging in which she is cooked for, works, teaches children, chats, sings, in short, does as she fancies. We even saw some who are not wearing their order's habit. It is a way of life that is beyond comprehension. One would be tempted to believe that these women have taken refuge in this cloister to be more independent than they would have been in the outside world, end quote. Which, I mean, yeah, can you blame them? I mean, this is like Anne Bonny and piracy all over again. When you don't want to submit to being ruled by someone else, you find a way out. Sometimes that's through legal means, and sometimes it's not. All that to say that even in her so-called orphanhood, Manuela Sáenz grew up relatively privileged. Now, as I mentioned, Manuela was fairly well integrated into the larger Sáenz family. She knew and loved her seven half-siblings, and while circumstances would separate her from many of them throughout her life, she would remain in touch with at least a few. Her father, Simon Sáenz, had plans to arrange a marriage for her. As you've probably heard before, marriage at this time wasn't really thought of as a source of like emotional well-being so much as an expedient way to ensure the family's interests. In fact, it was so important in Spain and the Spanish Americas that the year 1778 had actually seen the law Real Pragmatica passed, which was designed to increase a parent's control over a child's marriage by giving them the right to legally challenge it. This law has actually never been repealed and had potential ramifications for the current royal family of Spain back in 2014 when King Juan Carlos I wanted to abdicate. Obviously, I won't get too much into this, but basically because Real Pragmatica has never been formally rescinded, some people believe that Juan Carlos's children and grandchildren weren't eligible to ascend to the Spanish throne because they weren't of 100% royal blood. Nevertheless, Juan Carlos's son, Philippe, peacefully ascended to the throne in 2014 with his very beautiful but non-royal wife by his side. In a similar vein of unapproved marriages, there's a legend that Manuela Sáenz tried to run away from the convent to elope with a young Spanish officer. We don't have proof that this ever happened, but certainly if it did, her father would have challenged the marriage. What we know for sure is that Simon Sáenz married Manuela to his wealthy business associate, James Thorne, who was, quote, one of a small number of British entrepreneurs and fortune seekers who had begun trickling into the Spanish colonies at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, end quote. When she was 19 years old, Sáenz traveled to Lima, where Thorne lived, and the two were married on July 27, 1817. At this point, Sáenz's last name would have changed to reflect her marriage, but I'm going to keep calling her Sáenz for reasons that will soon become clear. With this marriage, Sáenz became the mistress of Thorne's household, which included command over an unknown number of slaves and servants, as well as access to fine luxuries. She also became the object of his affection. Though the marriage was arranged, Thorne came to love her, and we see some of that in their surviving correspondence. In letters he sent her while he was away on a business trip, he called her the, quote, most beloved wife of my heart and my precious Chinchita. Sáenz also became his confidant and business collaborator, helping him by conducting various transactions on his behalf. She possessed his general power of attorney and was able to supervise his affairs in Lima, as well as act on her own behalf. Certain legal and financial transactions, the buying, selling, and freeing of slaves, for example, usually could only be performed by men, but we know that while Thorne was away on one trip, Sáenz emancipated the young daughter of one of their slaves, but not the mother. In addition to Thorne's affairs, she used this legal power she had to claim her maternal inheritance. She hired a lawyer in Quito to essentially subpoena people to confirm the identity of Sáenz's parents and the circumstances of her separation from them. 
When Mariano Ontoniera, a Mercedarian friar, confirmed Joaquina Aispuro as Science's mother, that immediately gave her the right to a portion of the estate of Joaquina's father, Don Mateo Aispuro. Of course, nothing was so easy, and it would take a very long time and a trip to Quito for Science to get the money she was legally entitled to under Spanish law. Now, even when she wasn't acting on Thorne's behalf, Science's life in Lima was surprisingly free. Women had an unusual degree of freedom there, especially considering the time. They were allowed to move around the city unchaperoned and could mingle freely with anyone of any class. It often shocked European visitors, in fact, and a man named Robert Proctor noted that, quote, it is not thought at all inconsistent with propriety for respectable females to sit on benches in the plaza and public walkways, laughing and talking for an hour after dark. In fact, the ladies here regulate their own conduct, end quote. Obviously, Proctor thought this was terrible, but I think it's awesome, and I bet Cyan's loved it too. Women in Lima wore a traditional yet unique outfit that actually enabled this freedom and mobility, the saya y manto. The saya was a long, snug skirt, usually pleated and with a decorative fringe at the hem and raised to show off the feet and ankles. In paintings, it looks pretty, but I think it probably would have been difficult to walk in. The manto was, quote, a thick veil fastened to the back of the waist. From there, it was brought over the shoulders and head and drawn over the face so closely that all that was left uncovered was the small triangular space sufficient for one eye to peep through, end quote. I said it was traditional yet unique because it had Moorish origins and so came over to South America with the Spaniards, but the outfit was not popular outside of Lima. It's interesting because the saya y manto was originally designed to serve men's interests, hiding their wives from other eyes and trying to ensure a woman's chastity by keeping her body hidden. But women quickly claimed it for themselves and began using it to get around the city in disguise. As Murray notes, in this outfit, a woman's husband might not recognize her if he passed her on the street. All that was visible was one eye. That anonymity facilitated transgression against limits imposed on women by the Catholic Church and the government. Both tried to ban the Saya Imanto for precisely this reason, but its disguising effect was its own safeguard. It was difficult to ticket a woman they couldn't identify. Women in Lima went on wearing it regardless of what the powers that be said. Even though Cyan's probably would have never seen this fashion before coming to Lima, she probably quickly adapted to it, exploiting its obvious advantages. As an adult, Cyan's was reputedly beautiful, but stood out more for her sense of humor as well as her free-spiritedness, generosity, and compassion. She was lighthearted generally, and once confessed to her husband, quote, I tend to laugh at myself, revealing a level of confidence that's not easily achieved. She was occasionally impulsive and really loved a joke or a prank, anything that pushed the boundaries. There's a story from a friend of hers that once, when they were going horseback riding, Cyan's appeared disguised as a man in an officer's uniform and with a fake mustache. Before anyone could be sure of her identity, she took off, quote, forcing her companions to chase after her and thus confirm her identity, end quote. If you know anything about South American history, you know that by this point in history, Spain was starting to lose their grip on their colonies in South America. Between Napoleon's invasion of Spain, their own crises of rulership, and the rebellions by slaves in various colonies, anti-Spanish sentiment in South America was growing steadily. By 1810, quote, increasingly bitter wars were erupting between patriots and loyalists, and women played key roles in these battles. Urban upper-class women like Cyan's nurtured the patriot cause by, quote, 
hosting informal gatherings or tertulias that had served as forums for anti-Spanish criticism. They also gave much-needed financial, material, and logistical support to the leaders of the first insurgent armies. Women of all classes were integral to the Patriot struggle and involved in virtually all aspects of it. They routinely served as spies and couriers as well as nurses, armed smugglers, and provisioners of food and clothing. Although usually in disguise, they served occasionally as combatants as well. They also stood out for their role as Patriot Army recruiters. Indeed, the efficacy of their recruitment method, which involved bribing or otherwise persuading the Loyalist troops to defect to the Patriot side, a process generally known as seduction, had become a source of worry for Spanish officials." End quote. Science became involved in the conflict on behalf of the Patriots and supported José de San Martín, who had already successfully won freedom for Argentina and had crossed the Andes Mountains to work against the Spanish in Peru. She recruited men for San Martín, especially in the Numancia Regiment of the Spanish military, which her half-brother, Lieutenant José María del Campo, was a member of. By July 1821, she was an open supporter of the new Patriot government established by San Martín, answering the call for donations of fabric and clothing to resupply the Patriot army. Her support for independence won her recognition and public honor. She was among the first people inducted into San Martín's Order of the Son of Peru, the highest award still bestowed by Peru today. Female members were not eligible for the same benefits as their male counterparts, i.e. government office and a pension, but their male relatives were granted preference in applying for public office afterward. The public recognition from this and other awards gave her some of the honor and prestige that had been denied to her as a child due to her birth status. In April 1822, Science returned north to Quito. Her way was cleared by Patriot forces who had driven the Spanish out of this part of Peru. The reasons for her first trip home in five years were twofold. One was to visit her father, whose loyalist beliefs made him unwelcome in his longtime home. He was already planning to move back to Spain later that year. The second was to try to settle her pending claim to an inheritance from her mother. The only surviving relative on that side, Ignacia Espuro, refused to acknowledge Science's claim at first, but eventually acquiesced and offered her a flat sum of 10,000 pesos to be paid within two years. It wasn't the full amount that Science was entitled to, but she decided to drop her original demand theoretically to keep the peace, though I don't see what peace there was to keep at this point, honestly. But her visit to Quito would be life-changing for other reasons. The famous Simón Bolívar was due to arrive there around the same time. Bolívar had earned the title The Liberator in 1813 for his role in Venezuela's revolution against Spain and was, at that point, the supreme commander of Spanish America's most successful army. Together, they had broken Spain's hold over northern South America. Bolivar was also a conqueror, not just a revolutionary. In the power vacuum that came after the fall of the Spanish colonial power, known as the Viceroyalty of New Granada, Bolivar created a Colombian republic that would come to control the combined territories of modern-day Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Panama. In fact, in the same breath that he'd helped drive the Spanish from Quito, he had also annexed Quito into Gran Colombia. It was his dream to create a South American unity under one strong government, just not the Spanish one. He was kind of similar to Napoleon in this way, and in fact strongly admired Napoleon. Bolivar arrived in Quito on June 16, 1822. Residents of Quito turned out in droves to welcome the liberator to their city. They decorated their homes in red, blue, and gold to symbolize their annexation into Gran Colombia and their new identity as Colombians. He entered the city in a parade with 700 horsemen then ascended to a decorated platform where he received a welcome from the men of the city as well as young women dressed in classical nymph costumes. 
This really surprised me at first, but apparently he was seen as a quote, new world Caesar Augustus, so perhaps it's not that surprising? That night, the prominent Larea family threw a private ball in his honor at their home. According to legend, it was there that Science and Bolivar met and began their romantic relationship. She was 24 and he was 39. I want to throw out that society had changed enough in the 25 years since her parents' affair that an extramarital affair was slightly less frowned upon than before. Illegitimacy rates were as high as 35% throughout through the 18th century, which signals that these affairs were, quote, fairly common among elites in late colonial Spanish America. They were encouraged both by the widespread practice of arranged marriages and the gap between the elite's public and private worlds. As long as a person, either a man or a woman, remained discreet about it, he or she could carry on an affair without fear of damage to honor and reputation. Of course, there remained some double standard, and so women had to be a bit more discreet, but I say this because Science's status as Bolivar's mistress became quickly pretty well known and did not result in her facing recriminations, as we might have thought. This change happened in part because of the feeling of relief that spread throughout major cities like Quito following their freedom from Spain. After years of conflict, there was a rise of a quote, new, more easygoing democratic culture and sociability, which included a quote, unprecedented mingling of the sexes and classes through dances, gambling, cockfights, and more. We can understand this affair and others like it through this cultural shift. Bolivar and Science fell deeply in love. He'd had many fleeting romantic relationships in his life, but had always prioritized his larger political goals. According to many biographers, quote, he rarely lingered in cities and, when not absorbed in a military operation, was almost always in a hurry to get back to his troops. Which, of course, would make it difficult for a real relationship to take root. With Science, however, things shifted. Instead of leaving her behind in 1823, she began to accompany him while he traveled as a member of his staff. He once admitted to her that he loved her for her, quote, delightful temperament more than anything else. Apparently, as the years of battle weighed on him, she became one of the few people who could lift him out of his darker moods. Years into their affair, in response to someone's criticism of his impulsivity, Bolivar called her, quote, our dear madwoman. Now, Science's husband, Thorne, doesn't really play into the picture much from here on out, so I'm just gonna tell you the rest of their story really quickly. He learned about the affair and begged her to end it for years, first out of heartbreak and then probably more out of concern for both of their reputations. She was pretty frank with him in return, saying that she loved Bolivar and not Thorne and could not be convinced to abandon him. Concerns about honor no longer mattered to her. There is some evidence that Thorne may have at some point actually contacted Bolivar, asking him for the, quote, return of his wife. He may have even threatened to force science into a divorcio, a woman's prison where husbands could send their wives for perceived bad behavior. Which, you know, just kind of makes me shake with rage. However, there's no evidence that he actually did do this to science, and she never returned to him. The two remained legally married until Thorne died in 1847, maybe due to the difficulty of divorce. He eventually began seeing another woman as well and gave up on begging science to return to him. I'll tell you what comes next after a brief word from a sponsor. Today, I want to tell you all about empowering women as leaders. 
This Texas-based nonprofit provides scholarships and mentoring to women attending college at a non-traditional age. They have given over $300,000 in scholarships to over 120 women aged 23 to 64 to help them finish their degrees. NEWL has paired over 100 professionals with students for long-lasting mentoring relationships. I didn't know this until I heard of EWL, but women who have a mentor in college are actually 130% more likely to hold a leadership position in their workplace later in life. While financial aid is, of course, incredibly important, mentoring helps these students make a difference in the way they approach the rest of their lives. Right now, EWL is raising money for their next round of scholarships. Every little bit helps. So head over to EWLUSA.org to learn more about how you can support their students in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin. Again, that's that's EWLUSA.org. So as I mentioned before, Science managed to become a member of Bolivar staff. By December of 1823, she had become his personal archivist, a very unusual role for a woman to hold at this time. It allowed her to follow him wherever he traveled, as well as receive a paycheck, ensuring that she could be independent from her husband. Without this paycheck, she would have been dependent on either her husband or Bolivar for everything, which can feel like a dangerous position for a woman to occupy, no matter the time period. For several months, she followed Bolivar by about a day's ride and along a separate route that remained secret, especially as they passed through royalist-dominant regions. She kept the archive of his documents and records of his work with her, and was accompanied by guards. The only people who knew where Science was were her guards, Bolivar, and a few trusted couriers who carried letters and documents between them. This setup lasted for about a year, but in 1825, Bolivar was having doubts about their relationship. In the spring, there's evidence he had an affair with someone else. He also wrote to her saying, I, saying, quote, I see that nothing in the world can unite us under the auspices of innocence and honor, end quote. His concern was basically that this affair could be very damaging to their reputations, and in fact, some of his close allies and advisors had been trying to tell him that his ongoing affair with a married woman was too public and too scandalous. He wrote, quote, I wish to see you free of your husband, but at the same time innocent. I cannot stand the idea of being the robber of a heart that was once virtuous and that, because of me, no longer is, end quote. However, <laughs> However, early in 1826, when Science hinted that she might really reconcile and go to London with Thorne, perhaps to rekindle their relationship and even meet his family there, Bolivar couldn't take it. Do not go anywhere, not even with God himself, he commanded her, going on to say, quote, I too want to see you and see you again and touch you and smell you and taste you and unite you to me through all the senses. You are the only woman for me, end quote. So, you know, whatever his initial ethical misgivings about their relationship, ultimately his, quote, pure and guilty love for science won out. Those are his words, by the way, pure and guilty. I can't find any proof that Bolivar was a poet, but something about the phrase strikes me as poetic. Maybe he wrote some and just none of it survives. During this period of reckoning, science was heartbroken and potentially suicidal. She wrote to a mutual friend of theirs, quote, Misfortune has befallen me. All things must come to an end. Bolivar no longer thinks of me. She added that she was, quote, miserable, ready to do something crazy, and, quote, might even die because Bolivar had moved on. 
A lot of historians call this melodrama, which makes me really uncomfortable. I have a personal policy of never assuming someone talking about suicide is joking. I'm not sure what might have been considered quote-unquote normal behavior for a woman in South America in the 1820s facing heartbreak. This particular part of cultural history is not my expertise, and I couldn't easily find more information, so I can't say whether Cyan's is operating within a defined gender role by saying that she might die if Bolivar abandoned her. But I don't know, maybe this whole might even die statement is the 1820 equivalent of I can't even or I'm dead, which on their faces are dramatic statements, but we all know is just millennial meme culture. My point is mostly just that I don't know. Was Science really feeling suicidal over Bolivar's potential abandonment? I mean, maybe. She had blown up her hard-won reputation and respectable life for this man. I wouldn't be surprised if a woman living in her economic and social reality felt trapped by this and decided that the only way out was suicide. I think today it would be believable if someone died by suicide because of this very situation. I can't imagine the potential terror she might have felt going through the situation in a world where the men around her dictated the terms of her survival in a much more stark way than women in the US face today. All that to say that this was a dark period for our hero. When Bolivar realized the folly of trying to end the relationship with the woman he idolized, his words, she moved his headquarters at La Magdalena to be closer to him. This move very clearly signaled her growing importance as his mistress, friend, and ally. Having her own residence near his was a clear signal that she was, at the very least, a semi-official mistress that he was willing to acknowledge in public. Soon, Science wasn't just a member of his staff and his mistress, she became a trusted member of his inner circle, which Pamela Murray describes as, quote, an itinerant family. She was known for her personal and political loyalty to Bolivar, standing out even among his inner circle. One of the rules he'd put in place for his archivist was that she was not to release anything without Bolivar's express permission, which was occasionally frustrating to his generals. She also began receiving petitioners on his behalf, as well as visitors seeking any sort of special favor from him. She began to act as an intercessor on behalf of refugees, taking cases to him that she thought he might care about. Like other members of the inner circle, Cyan supported Bolivar's political goals unquestioningly, even his plan to unite all of South America under Gran Colombia. Not to get too dun-dun-dun about it, but certainly his replacing of Spanish colonial power with his own power didn't make a lot of the patriots from the Revolutionary Wars happy. I'm making a very complicated story very short when I say that people began to revolt. Conspiracies to overthrow Bolivar developed, including one that came from within the military on January 25th, 1827. Many rank-and-file soldiers were frustrated not just with the power grab, but also with missing wages and a shortage of food for the military. They mutinied and seized control of the palace and Plaza de Armas in Lima, sending officers who were loyal to Bolivar out of the city. Science went to Lima personally to try to mitigate the impact of this uprising. She dressed in a colonel-style uniform and gave inspiring speeches, plus wads of money, to sergeants and corporals trying to get them to stay on Bolivar's side. She had some success and was also able to use her time there to smuggle out several documents to preserve in the archive. On February 7th, in retaliation, several troops barged into Science's house at Bolivar's headquarters and tried to force her to go back to Lima. She managed to hold them off for a night by feigning an illness, which uh, it amazes me that that worked. But the next day, they took her to Lima and confined her at the women's prison at the convent of Las Nazarenas. She became a government prisoner and wasn't ever tried for her supposed crimes. 
Finally, after a lot of letter writing and insisting on her rights under the newly restored Peruvian constitution, it seems like the people holding her kind of got sick of her and released her on March 23rd. She actually stayed in Lima trying to get justice for her unlawful imprisonment and also probably stoke public opinion against the new Peruvian government, but was eventually kicked out of the city that she'd been forcibly brought to. The new Peruvian Minister of Foreign Relations, Manuel Lorenzo Vidaure, which I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that perfectly, characterized her as scandalous and, quote, an insult to the public's honor before giving her until April 10th to leave Lima. She waited until April 11th to board a ship for Guayaquil, which was the first major port in Gran Colombia on the way out of the Republic of Peru. By this point, all of her politicking on behalf of Bolivar had officially earned her the nickname La Libertadora, which is the feminine form of Bolivar's nickname, the Liberator. Soon after landing in Guayaquil, Sáenz went onward to Quito and then Bogotá, where Bolívar was at his personal family residence. There, Bolívar was facing internal issues with the people he'd long considered allies. His vice president of Gran Colombia, Francisco de Pola Santander, had begun openly criticizing Bolívar, especially his pro-dictatorship ideas and his plans for South American domination. Factions were splitting and developing and began manifesting in street violence by early 1828. Sáenz was brutally antagonistic toward Bolívar's opponents, calling them wicked men and praying, quote, God grant that they die. As some of his allies fell away, he came to rely more and more on her advice. She began collaborating with his main followers, known as the Bolivarians. This loose group was made up of the country's oldest and wealthiest families, members of the clergy, members of the Colombian army, and a few British or Irish officers that had stuck around after helping in the revolution against Spain. Using a political stalemate that they had themselves largely manufactured, in June 1828, the Bolivarians declared that the country was, quote, in crisis, and used it as an excuse to call on Bolivar to assume emergency dictatorial powers. A lot of moderates actually agreed with this proposal, seeing dictatorship as a short-term practical measure, a necessary evil. He accepted the call and promised to only retain the powers until the liberals in the nation had calmed down. To celebrate and gain support, Sáenz threw a huge party for Bolívar's birthday on July 28th at his private residence. The party was, smartly, open to the general public and included free food and drink as well as entertainment provided by a military band. Of course, this party got a little out of control and spawned a scandal. Someone made a dummy of Vice President Santander and gave it a mock trial before executing him in effigy. Some people blamed this on Sáenz, saying that she had either had the idea or encouraged the celebrants to keep going. She denied it, but it did alienate a few of Bolivar's supporters further because it associated her with the most extreme Bolivarians and confirmed the public's perception of her as someone with too much influence behind the scenes. Some people began referring to her as La Presidenta, which some of Bolivar's government allies were worried would undermine both Bolivar and the very government they were trying to save. But if science was starting to be associated with the extreme Bolivarians, the extreme end of the Santanderista opposition was becoming a dangerous force. This group had its roots in political clubs called Circulos, attended primarily by university students and idealistic young lawyers. On August 10th, they tried to assassinate Bolivar in a plan that sounds oddly like a combination of Caesar's assassination and Lincoln's assassination, which happened 30 years after this attempt. They planned to seize Bolivar while at the city's theater and stab him to death, but they were thwarted by Sáenz, who had apparently learned of the plot and showed up at the theater to warn him. 
Since that didn't work, on September 25th, more conspirators sprung into action. 16 artillery soldiers and 10 civilians, led by Venezuelan officer Pedro Carujo, broke into the presidential palace and made their way to Bolivar's bedroom. Astonishingly, Bolivar had been warned of this attack by an informant, but had, quote, scoffed at the news, sure that it was just a rumor. He didn't make any special arrangements for security. Instead, he asked Science to stay the night, though she normally slept at a separate residence just to read to him. The two had fallen asleep by the time the conspirators broke in. She woke first, startled by the dogs barking in the night. When she woke Bolivar, he apparently tried to run to the door and she had to redirect him to the window, persuading him to escape through it into the street below. It was a narrow escape. He waited to jump until the attackers were trying to force their way through the locked door. Science opened the door for them and they grabbed her, demanding to know where Bolivar was. Thinking quickly, she told them that he was in the council room, which they demanded that she lead them to. She began to, but suddenly decided to claim that she didn't know where the council room was. When they eventually forced her to continue, she stopped to take care of a wounded man loyal to Bolivar, which again infuriated them. They began beating her with the sides of their swords. Science, who was actually already sick that night, was severely injured and would feel the effects of their attack for weeks. Nevertheless, she still tried to help people as they forced her forward, effectively slowing them down and giving Bolivar time to get far away. Finally, the attackers realized they'd failed and fled. Science found a doctor to take care of the people wounded inside the presidential palace, then went in search of the liberator. She found him in the plaza, safe but shaken. Supposedly for the first time ever, he acknowledged that Science was, quote, la libertadora del libertador. This has all sorts of political consequences for Colombia, but this podcast isn't about that, so I'm going to mosey right along. But um, just know there's a ton that I'm skipping here that's, if you're into this sort of, that type of like military and like political history, I really recommend you go check out. Cool. So, while science collaborated with the regime to suppress further uprisings against Bolivar, the liberator himself left Bogota in, eight, in February 1829 to go to Guayaquil to oversee battles against an encroaching P Peruvian army. The two wouldn't see each other for 11 months. In April 1829, Sáenz became embroiled in a controversial project, converting Gran Colombia into a monarchy, which would have included support from one of the major European powers. Many members of Bolívar's government blamed republicanism and the whole government structure for all of the political turmoil that Central and South America had been facing since the withdrawal of Spanish power, and they believed that the only way to regain stability was to return to monarchical rule. The plan was that an heir from one of the royal houses of Europe, preferably the French Orléans dynasty, would move to Colombia to take over once Bolivar stepped down. His health was declining rapidly, and they really needed to do something. If it seems weird that they wanted to go all in with France so soon after having overthrown the Spanish, it has to do with the popular culture of the elites in South America at this time. Many Creole elites, especially of science's generation, were a fan of French language and culture. In May 1829, science hosted a special reception for the French delegation to Grand Colombia, including King Charles X's personal envoy, Monsieur Charles de Bresson. Bolivar, however, decided against pursuing this avenue. Through the rest of 1829 and 1830, Bolivar's regime grew more unstable and his health declined rapidly. He was suffering from tuberculosis. He resigned the presidency on March 1st, 1830, amid political tension, and then left the country in May because political tension was still rising. 
Cyan struggled with his decision and ultimately stayed behind, convinced that his exile was temporary. In July, she began working toward his comeback by rallying local Bolivarian sentiment and cultivating sympathy within, i.e. giving gifts to, certain battalions who guarded the presidential palace. By August, a budding rebellion could be seen, especially among conservative-minded wealthy elites who regretted Bolivar's departure. Of course, the Santanderista government wasn't loving this behavior from Cyan's, especially because she was not being very secretive. I mean, she was posting broadsides in the main square saying, Long live Bolivar. On July 17, 1830, she was indicted on several charges, including, quote, seducing the palace guards, insulting the public, and dressing like a man, which broke the rules of modesty and morality, end quote. A warrant was issued for her arrest, and the government wanted her exiled. She evaded this for several weeks, but eventually agreed to cooperate with the official order for exile. This may have been less because she wanted to cooperate with the government, and more because local Santanderista extremists had begun making assassination threats against her. Violence was really escalating in Bogota around this time. She probably wanted to get out of the city anyway. In late August, Bolivarian forces overthrew the liberal forces, leading to the resignation of liberal president Mosquera. In September, several members of Bogota's powerful met to call for Bolivar to return from exile and resume power. He was due to return in December and asked for science to be there to meet him. There were rumors by this point that he was hopelessly ill, though. Science refused to believe this, regarding them as, quote, mere liberal propaganda. In a letter to a friend, science wrote, quote, the liberator is immortal. On December 17, 1830, Bolivar died at a friend's house, ultimately succumbing to the tuberculosis that had long plagued him. The news traveled slowly, and it's likely that science didn't know until early January. His death was officially announced on January 10th by interim president Rafael Urdaneta. For her part, science postponed her plans to return to Bogota. There's speculation about why. Perhaps she wanted to grieve alone. Some sources suggest she had begun to suffer from rheumatism, and her exile in a much warmer climate had actually soothed some of the early symptoms that she was experiencing. Some also say she may have been severely depressed. Her friend, French scientist Jean-Baptiste Bossignol, visited her and said that she had tried to die of a poisonous snake bite. She told him it had been, quote, a science experiment, but he speculated that she had been trying to imitate Cleopatra's famous suicide. With some help from her friends, she eventually emerged from this darkness. Practical matters began to really concern her, namely that without the job as advisor and archivist, science was really broke. She was also really troubled by the direction the government was taking. Without Bolivar to rally around, the Bolivarian mission had largely collapsed, but a period of partisan reprisals was starting, escalating violence even further than before Bolivar's death. Science still retained her status as La Libertadora in many minds, and they came to her for help planning rebellions against the liberal government. Eventually, in 1833, Science was convicted of being part of a conspiracy to overthrow the government and was ordered back into exile. She was able to put off actually going into exile for a while, largely due to her financial troubles. Travel in South America at this time was incredibly difficult, especially along the mountainous eastern coast of the continent. Among members of the upper class, it was common then to, quote, defray the cost of travel through the sale of merchandise or by acting as a friend's business agent. Science was probably hoping to do this to get to Quito, where she still had relatives. The government ran out of patience. On January 1st, 1834, she was ordered to leave by the 13th. When she hadn't, a group of 20 people, soldiers, police, and convicts, appeared at her door, ready to, quote, carry her off by force if necessary. What ensued was a standoff. 
Science ordered the men to leave her property. When they didn't, she grabbed two pistols and said that if they used force, she would not hesitate to shoot. She announced that she was tired of living and, quote, couldn't care less about sending a few men to the next world ahead of her. Eventually, the recently appointed sheriff, Lorenzo Yaras, ordered that she be bound. She tried to fight back, but was unsuccessful. She was taken to the local divorcio, where they could keep an eye on her overnight. At 5.30 the next morning, soldiers let her and her servants out of Bogota. They picked up supplies in a neighboring town, then slowly made their way to Jamaica, probably not arriving until nearly June. This unceremonious and violent ouster did not go unnoticed. U.S. diplomat to New Granada, Robert B. McAfee, noted with awe that it had taken, quote, a guard of 20 soldiers a whole day to arrest Science without killing her. Bolivar's favorite mistress was as brave as Caesar, end quote. Local critics were less impressed, accusing the government of going overboard and saying that denying a sick woman the chance to say goodbye to friends or receive consolation from a priest was, quote, not something done among Christians, end quote. Now, the rest of her life is kind of disheartening. She lived in exile for over 20 years, never really recovering from this financial instability. When her husband, James Thorne, was murdered in 1847, she did not receive the inheritance she believed that she was owed, and instead it went to his two illegitimate children who he'd had with other women after she left him for Bolivar. She spent most of that time in the Peruvian port of Paita, a relatively prosperous town thanks to the local whaling industry. There was a good mix of foreign and native-born residents there, including several of Science's compatriots who had also been forced into exile by changing government tides. She did befriend General Juan José Flores after her exile, who remained important in the political scene in Ecuador, which had seceded from Gran Colombia by this point. He was an old follower of Bolivar, who she had met over a decade before. He was so powerful, and she made herself useful to him in any way that she could. In fact, according to Murray, it was, quote, not unusual for women who had been widowed or otherwise left on their own to enter into a clientelistic relationship come friendship with a powerful cadillo, which is um, Spanish for a military leader. Science needed powerful people on her side, and Flores helped her a lot. In exchange, she acted as a spy among the other exiles in Paita, letting him know what was being said, who was working with who to gain power, and more. She kept him informed of Peruvian politics, letting him know what was happening, or at least what was being talked about, by the other connections she had cultivated back when she lived in Lima. In her final years, Science's health continued to deteriorate. She injured her hip and lost ease of mobility in her legs and needed a wheelchair to get around. But at least this time was peaceful for her. The political turmoil and violence that had marked the 1830s largely left her alone in Paita. Toward the end of June 1856, Manuela Saenz contracted a severe illness, probably diphtheria. There was an epidemic going on. She died as a result of her illness on November 23, 1856. Like many victims of the diphtheria epidemic, Science was buried in a mass grave outside of Paita. Many people have made pilgrimages of a sort to Paita to see where Science lived out her life and died. Thanks to the work of several South American journalists, novelists, and filmmakers, her life has become iconic in South America. Even famous Chilean poet Pablo Neruda wrote a poem dedicated to her memory titled The Unburied Woman of Paita. I've included the poem in Spanish and in English in the Unruly Figure Substack, so go check that out. In July 2010, she was symbolically reinterred in Venezuela at the National Pantheon, where Simón Bolívar's remains rest as well. 
Today, she's seen as a feminist heroine. And truly, science's life signals a unique place occupied by literate upper-class women in early Republican South America. Traditionally, social norms dictated that upper-class women were barred from traditional occupations and expected to stay home to limit their contact with the corrupting outside world and public sphere. But Manuela Saenz in her life found a middle ground between public and private. As Sarah Chambers, historian at University of Minnesota, noted, although women were excluded from formal politics and the press, they were active in social spaces between the public and private spheres, where philosophies were discussed, plots hatched, and alliances formed. Science contributed to a growing respect for women as political agents in their own right. Today, the Museo Manuela Saenz in Old Town Quito contains personal effects from her and Bolivar in order to, quote, safeguard the memories of Manuela Saenz, Quito's illustrious daughter. Well, that's the story of Manuela Saenz. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unruly Figures. If you follow me on Twitter, you know this episode is a few days late because I had surgery on December 7th and it really knocked me out for longer than I was expecting it to. Thank you all for your patience. If you aren't following along on Twitter yet, why not? We have a good time. Our handle is Unruly Figures. Come hang out. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is research, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Thank you.